When most people get into the books of the Old Testament law, especially in Leviticus and Numbers, with all the odd and obscure laws and regulations, they bail out. And why shouldn't they? What do these laws and regulations have to do with us today? I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And we'll answer all these questions and more in our lesson today entitled, The Old Testament Laws, Why Read Them, How to Understand Them, and Apply Them Today. Why not bail out? Why not skip the outdated laws and odd ceremonies? We're all very busy today. We know reading the Bible is good for us, but this section of the Bible reading is about building the tabernacle and all the laws and regulations. What does that have to do with us? Why are we taking time to read it? That's a very valid question, and the answers are important to understand. First, our topic is worthy of it. The Christian faith in the Bible that is the source of our knowledge of it is the most important topic we can study. It is about life or death, literally heaven or hell, in this life and the next. Though you wouldn't really know that from much Christian messaging today, Christianity is not simply an alternative philosophical system to help you live your best life now. It's much more than tips on how to have happy relationships and spend your money wisely. Though it does talk about these things and they're important, that is not the main thing. Ultimately, it is about salvation from eternal separation from God by means of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and nothing is more important than a correct understanding of it. Now, please see the lessons that I have on salvation and discipleship on Bible 805. They're completely free if you want more information on this topic. But also, we want to study these difficult parts of the Bible because anything you want to learn of value takes time and effort to understand it and master it. Whether it's learning a sport, how to play an instrument, mastering a topic of study or career, learning to cook or sew, or whatever it is. Learning the Bible, getting to know our God, our Savior, and learning to live a life that's pleasing to Him requires similar, if not even more, effort than these other things because what you learn influences not only your life now, but how you will spend eternity. And part of that is taking time to read and learn about the challenging parts of the Bible. God put them there for a reason. And to understand the entire Bible, you really do need to understand these parts. But they are difficult. And these lessons will help you understand and apply them. Now, what we're going to cover in this lesson about the laws of the Old Testament. First, we're going to talk about what was the purpose of these laws. And then based on that, what is valid and what isn't for us to follow today? And what do we primarily learn from? Which lesson, in other words, which laws teach us something? Which ones do we actually have to follow? Also, we'll talk about the historical context of the laws, why the specifics of many of them will make much more sense when you understand the setting of them. And then we're going to look at a really sort of difficult topic, but one that's so interesting when you understand it, and that's the topic of typology or foreshadowing of the Old Testament tabernacle, the festivals, and the sacrifices. This is an important theological concept that will help you understand how the Old Old and New Testaments fit together. 
And then, of course, we're going to talk about application, the exciting application that God has for us based on these passages. Underlying all of what we're going to be talking about, it helps us to understand God's view of time and to keep it in mind. Because remember, God simultaneously is aware of and knows all that is past, present, and future, even though as human beings we only experience a point in time. We need to keep God's view of time in mind as we study the Old Testament, because God knew what's coming in the New Testament, and because of that, he can talk about about things in the Old Testament that he will reveal more fully in the New Testament. So always kind of keep this picture, this illustration of God's overview of everything in mind as we go through the different parts of the lesson. First of all, though, the purpose of the Old Testament laws. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament clarifies it in the book of Galatians where he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The Jewish laws in the Today's Living Bible puts it this way, the Jewish laws were our teacher and guide until Christ came to give us right standing with God through our faith. The law in various translations is talked about as a guardian, a teacher, a guide. Other translations call it a tutor. Remember, people on their own back then and today, we don't know exactly what God wants us to do. We don't naturally follow it. We need laws to tell us this is right, this is wrong. Now, why it was needed and what it was needed to teach people. God called Israel out of Egypt to be his people, his representatives on earth. As he said, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The challenge is, how are they supposed to do that? They were just a bunch of slaves in Egypt. They wouldn't learn it from Egypt. They wouldn't learn it from its customs or religions or any of the surrounding nations, how they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Following God, knowing what he wants us to do, doesn't come naturally to them, and it doesn't come naturally to us either. They needed detailed instructions in every part of life for how to live because God both cares about every part and he wants us to acknowledge him in every part of our lives. So they were like young children in the ways of living as God wanted them to. Warren Wiersbe talks about this a lot in his commentary on the Old Testament. And he said, that's why the laws were so detailed and why the punishments were as strict as they were. They were really like children in having to learn everything. Now, does that mean that we need to follow all the laws today? Fortunately, no. (laughs) The Westminster Confession of Faith and many other organizing documents of various churches divide the Mosaic laws into three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial. Though there's some discussion of the exact division of some laws into different parts, these main divisions pretty much all churches agree on. And overall, they agree that only the moral laws of the Mosaic Law, which include the Ten Commandments and the commandments repeated in the New Testament, directly apply to Christians today. 
the ceremonial laws, these are the things on this is how they're supposed to worship in the temple and the sacrifices and all of those similar laws, how to build the tabernacle, how to build the ark, uh, the lights, all that kind of thing. All of these pointed to the coming Messiah, and they were fulfilled with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't follow them anymore. That's not how we build our churches. And then the civil laws, which had to do how the nation of Israel conducted itself in its daily life as it was formed into a nation, obviously many of them no longer apply today. However, Many of them are the basis for modern law. Um, if things like even you know redemption laws and telling the truth in court and all people being uh, equal under the law, and many of these things come from the Mosaic laws. Now we also want to look at the historical context, and this will really help us understand many of the things in the Bible. When you understand the historical setting, the actions of the people, the actions that people take place in a particular time make much more sense. When you also, when you understand the historical context, you're able to answer critics of the Bible because quite a bit of misunderstanding of these books is because the actions of people are completely pulled out of context. And people sort of say, well, you, we wouldn't act like that today. Well, no, probably not. But people that God gave these laws to, they're not living today. They were living thousands of years ago. And so God addressed their specific situation. Here's one example um, where there's a huge misunderstanding of that statement, an eye for an eye. People say, oh, wasn't that terribly cruel? Well, no. And many of the laws in the Old Testament seem extraordinarily harsh until you look at the historical context of them. For example, in an eye for an eye, that actually was very um, limiting in many ways. It was reflective of some current laws, but it was revolutionary in how it was applied. Let me give you an example of this. Hammurabi's Code, which was considered that one of the finest ethical standards of law during that time, put it this way. If a man has destroyed the eye of a man of the gentleman class, they shall destroy his eye. If he has destroyed the eye of a commoner, he shall pay one minna of silver. If he has destroyed the eye of a gentleman's slave, he shall pay half the slave's price. The Babylonians and other ancient people clearly did not live under a social system that treated all people equally. And it must have sounded astonishing to this group of former slaves to realize that their justice uh, anyone's justice, no matter who they were in the society, would be for the same. So even though the idea of an eye for an eye, again, seems very harsh, it applied equally to all. And by the way, the principle was that there's equal justice. We do not actually know of any examples where it was carried out um, in reality. So it's the principle that was important there, equal justice for all people, no matter their social standing. As God's people, wealth and status have no meaning in justice. 
A second historical context is important, and that is there are many laws, of course, in these books of the Old Testament on sexual purity. And in addition to showing us God's standards for how to conduct our sexual lives, many of the laws make more sense when seen in historical context. For example, in Egypt, marriage between brothers and sisters and between other family members was common. People married anybody. They wanted to marry relatives and this and that and had numerous wives and cousins and brothers, sisters, whatever. God clearly shows in his laws that this was not acceptable for his people. Also, during that time and into New Testament times, pagan worship also often involved sexual rites, and God clearly defined how his people were to worship. Sexual practices in the temple, sexual prostitutes, the exploitation of both young men and young women was totally forbidden. That was to have no part in the worship of God's people. Now, we might wonder why Though, did they have to do sacrifices? Why sacrifices of any kind? Animal sacrifices foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Hebrews tells us in 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, why that is? We don't know. Any more than we know why God separates our time into day and night, why there are four seasons, or why all people worship. It's simply been that way from the earliest days of earth. That's simply how reality is. When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal, shed its blood for the skins that he covered them with. When Cain and Abel made a sacrifice to God, only the animal sacrifice was acceptable. After Noah left the ark, he made an animal sacrifice. Job sacrificed animals for the, skin, for the sins of his children. It seems to be a universal religious practice throughout all the earth that people sacrifice to their God. However, and this is very important, Israel's sacrifices were unique. In the surrounding pagan societies, and <clears throat> In the surrounding pagan societies, when the Israelites moved into the land, there was widespread sacrifice of children. The worship of Moloch required that a live child be placed in the arms of a huge idol and burned as a sacrifice. It was not that way with Israel. God was very clear, only animals were sacrificed by the Jews. And there was a specific way to sacrifice the animals, a very humane way of killing them, where the jugular vein of the animal was quickly severed, and they would not feel pain when they died. When um, the jugular vein is severed, the blood is immediately cut off to the brain, and they don't feel anything. We'll talk more about the meaning of sacrifices later and in coming lessons, but the important thing now is that in the historical context, the sacrifices of the Jewish people were very different and much more tightly regulated than those of the surrounding peoples. The sacrifices are also a primary example of typology, a key to understanding the relationship between the Old and New Testament. Now, it gets a little hard here, so bear with me. Typology is based on the assumption that there is a pattern in God's work throughout salvation history. 
Um, again, uh, Henry Verkler in his excellent book, Hermeneutics, puts it this way. God prefigured his redemptive work in the Old Testament and fulfilled it in the New. In the Old Testament are shadows of things to be more fully revealed in the New. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, for example, demonstrated to Old Testament believers the necessity of atonement for their sins. These ceremonies pointed forward to the perfect atonement to be made in Christ. The prefigurement is called the type. The corresponding figure, the fulfillment, is called the antitype. Now, that's where it gets confusing, because when you read all the Bible commentaries on this, they talk about something being a type in the Old Testament. For example, the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament was a type of Christ's future death on the cross. So far, that makes sense. But then many commentaries go on to say that Christ's death was the antitype. Well, what does that mean? Does an anti-whatever mean something that's totally the opposite? Nope. (laughs) That's what it does mean in common usage. But the Greek definition, and I don't know who started using this because I think it's really confusing, but this is how it is. The word anti-type in this usage is actually the word antitupos, which means corresponding as an impression to the die. Now, when I finally read that, all of a sudden, this whole system made sense to me. And I must admit, I'd studied for years, and I just, I just couldn't wrap my head around type, and I type. It just didn't make sense. But when I read that it, cor- it means corresponding as an impression to the die, it made sense to me because one of the many jobs that I've had in my long work history is that of a publication designer. And part of being a publication designer is an understanding of typography. Now, the term antitupos, corresponding as an impression to the die, makes perfect sense when you think of term in terms of setting type. When type is set to the typesetter, it's often upside down and backwards. It's all there. The context is there, but the type is not easy to read. But when the impression, the print is made of the type, the antitupos, The meaning is clear. Now, I have two illustrations in the video. Please, if you're listening to the podcast, do try to uh, check out this part of the video because it'll really make sense to you. I have the typeset of Merry Christmas, which is upside down and backwards. And you can tell that's what it is, but it's very hard to read. But then when the type is set, it's very clear and it makes much more sense. I have another example of where the type is set and it the print it's it's a printing plate that says the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog and feels as if he were in the seventh heaven of topography together with Herman Zaff, who is a famous topographer. So you can see that in the set type, but it's much clearer when it's printed out once we have the anti-tupos, the print of it. Again, the original type's hard to read, though the content is there, but once printed, the impression, the antitupos, the fulfillment, the words become clear. And now let me show you some examples of how typology relates to the passage that you're reading now and as you're starting to read through the Old Testament laws. The Jewish tabernacle and all that's associated with it is commonly seen as a series of types 
describing Jesus Christ. In other words, images that he will later fulfill. Jesus describes himself as the door and the only way to God. And there was only one way, only one door, one opening to get into the tabernacle court. Many other parts of the tabernacle represent other aspects of the coming Messiah, Um, In other words, things like the bread, Um, Jesus is later described as the coming bread of life. And one of the most um, really meaningful ones is that of the sacrificial lambs. They are really the most significant type of the coming sacrifice of Jesus. And in the New Testament, one of the most powerful, powerful images, imagine if you were a Jew and you'd grown up all your life seeing lambs sacrificed and sacrificed again and again and again. And you knew this was a representation of the coming Messiah. And perhaps you were fortunate enough to live when John the Baptist was preaching and you heard him talk about that the Messiah was coming very soon, that he's almost there. And then one day a man approaches and John stops and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That was the fulfillment of the type of all these sacrifice lambs that had been going on for thousands of years. If you haven't read the story of the sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament, you really don't know what John's talking about. If you just start reading the Bible, perhaps in the New Testament, you just think, well, you know, what's he talking about? But you see, one of the benefits of once you really read and understand all of this material in the Old Testament, then many of these things in the New Testament will make much more sense to you. If you've read about it, again, when you hear John say those words, the power of their meaning will come alive to you. Now, another example, this is really a neat one. When you read about the veil that blocked the Holy of Holies from everyone in the Old Testament, only the high priest was allowed behind it once a year to make the sacrifice for sins. And in Jesus' day, this veil in the temple in Jerusalem was 60 feet long, 30 feet high, and four inches thick. It was massive. It was impressive. It was intimidating. It blocked man from God until... Jesus died on the cross, and it tells us in Matthew 27, 50 through 53, Jesus, again crying out loudly, breathed his last. At that moment, the temple curtain was ripped in two, top to bottom. There was an earthquake, and the rocks were split in pieces. Access to God was now free and open. What had been a symbol, a type of separation, now became one of free access. But again, if you didn't know the Old Testament story, if you didn't know how it had blocked people, again, for thousands of years from God, that ripping of the curtain, you might have thought, well, what was that all about? But you see, it's powerful when you know the backstory. Now, an expansion of the importance of types. Biblical topology, as evidenced in the writing of the New Testament, always involves a heightening of the type in the anti-type. It's not simply that Jesus replaces the temple as a new but otherwise equal substitute. No, Jesus is far greater than the temple. It is not as though Jesus is simply another in the line of prophets with Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. No, Jesus is much greater than the prophets. Note, this is also the whole idea of progressive revelation. God doesn't tell us the whole salvation story at once, but part by part throughout history.
Sometimes I've wondered if his telling us part by part is maybe a test to see if we're paying attention. It's very exciting when we see the parts of it fit together. And it is worth, I know it's hard sometimes in your reading now, but it is worth it to see when all these parts come together. Now, there's also a future purpose of types. The article that the quote I just read to you came from says, finally, it's important to point out that antitypes themselves may also function as types of future realities. Communion, for example, is the antitype or the future fulfillment of the Passover meal. Jesus' celebration of the Passover meal with his disciples on the night of his arrest symbolically points to the fact that he is the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Through the Last Supper and the corresponding sacrament of communion serve as the antitype, the fulfillment of the Passover meal, they also, listen carefully, point forward to their ultimate fulfillment in the wedding supper of the Lamb that we'll experience in heaven. On that glorious day, the purified bride, true Israel, will be united with her bridegroom in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, some practical reading suggestions. Though I trust this explanation of the purpose of the laws, historical context, and typology is useful, here's some additional advice. Don't get bogged down or overwhelmed by them, especially if you're just starting to read them for the first time. Read them even if you don't understand them all as you go along. Understanding them is a long-term project, and much of the Bible will make more and more sense as you read and get to know all the Bible and as you read through it again and again. And again, never just for knowledge, but for application as the story doesn't end with the Old Testament people. We are to be living sacrifices and a people of priests to represent our God in our world today. In many ways, you are the fulfillment of these Old Testament pictures as we're told that we are to be living sacrifices in response to God's salvation. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And in the message, it puts it this way. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And we're also, in addition to being a sacrifice, we're to represent our Lord to the world. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then it tells us that this isn't just a short time project, but in Revelations 1.5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We are his representatives. And here's an idea on how to get started doing it. Because like any, any challenging goal, you can't accomplish it all at once. If you feel overwhelmed being a sacrifice, being a kingdom of priests, just take it a little bit at a time. In weight loss, you lose weight changing one habit at a time, implementing it one day at a time. And it's the same with learning to be a representative of Jesus. Focus on one thing at a time. And an excellent verse as a challenge to do that is Micah 6.8, where it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, a few suggestions on applying Micah 6.8. To do justice. Of course, obedience to all the laws, as I'm Um, recording this is getting to be tax season and you want to pay your taxes properly. Do record everything, do all that you're supposed to do. A lot of people think they can always sort of fudge a little here, fudge a little there. No, no, no. That's not what our Lord wants. We're also to treat all people equally. If you're in a position of authority in any way, do not let yourself be swayed by rich, poor, position, whatever. Treat all people equally love kindness, simply be kind in every situation. That, oh, that is so important. If people would just do that, it would so change our world. And doing that really puts a spotlight on you as a representative of God, because people aren't kind in our world. Speak kindly, softly, pause before speaking. Do not mimic the snarky, mean, constantly taking offense stance of our world today. And walk humbly. As they, I believe C.S. Lewis said this, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You don't have to correct everyone. You don't have to promote yourself, your views, whatever. You can just keep quiet. God is in control. Meditate on Philippians 2, which is such a marvelously important passage where it says that in humility, value others better than yourselves. And then Paul goes on to discuss Jesus. He says, Jesus, who is in very nature God, humbled himself. And if our Lord could do that, we must do that as his followers, as his representatives. If you do these things prayerfully and consistently, it will take sacrifice and you will be a representative, a royal priesthood for our God. And knowing that you give our Lord joy as you do that will be worth all the work you put into it in understanding the Old Testament laws and the difficulties that you experience reading them. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, the Bible reading schedules, related resources, and all sorts of helpful links on www.bible805.com. I'm Yvonne Prien, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. 
May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.